Well, welcome. It's great to see all of you. I should say good morning, then you can say good morning. Good morning. And welcome to all of you joining us online. A good morning to you also. I'm uh, looking forward to sharing this message with you. I always love doing dedications, and I love the moment it represents and uh, the sacredness of it all. I remember when we did our dedication, and one of our little ones, Nate, was about a seven-year-old boy and with a platform about this high, and he couldn't help it. As soon as the dedication was done, he just went running off that platform and sailed out into the aisle through the air. So it's fun to have family, and it's fun to have... Uh, this moment to share in their lives. So today we're going to address the question in our series, Growing Up Faith, we're going to address this question, why don't Christians look different from everybody else? And I I thought a logical place for starting to really address this question of why don't Christians look different from everybody else is to to begin to address the question is, uh, is to understand what we're supposed to look like first. So I'm going to look into that particular angle here as we begin this message. What are we as followers of Jesus Christ supposed to look like? And we're going to begin by looking at the Old Testament example of Israel, what God envisioned for Israel, what it meant to be his people and what he wanted his people to look like. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read to you verses 5 through 6. Listen to this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of what? Priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God was saying to Israel, this is what I want you to look like. You're going to be a holy nation And you're going to be a kingdom of priests. I'm working through you so that you can what? Make my glory known to all the world. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and you're going to be a holy nation. So that was God's initial revelation of what he wants his people to look like. This foreshadowed, of course, uh, the calling and the look that God would place upon the church. Because remember, the Bible's one big story. And frequently, God is telling the story over and over again so that we get it. So one part helps explain the other parts. Now we get to the New Testament. And we're going to read how we, as New Covenant people, as the Church of Jesus Christ, how we're supposed to look. It's going to sound very familiar to what I just read. In fact, I want you to read this out loud with me. We're going to read... 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I want us to read it out loud. So if you're joining us online at home, I want you to read this out loud at home also so that you participate. So are you ready to read it out loud with me? Loudly? Yes? Because yes? sometimes, uh, you know, to your shame, second hour, third hour, who are fewer numbers are louder than you all are. So here we go. Read it out loud with me, loudly. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, the story hasn't changed at all. What does God want his people to look like? Holy priest. Can you remember those two things? Holy priest. He has called us his treasure possession. He has called us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's interesting how the old and the 
new mirror each other in the Bible, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you had God speaking to the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's saying to you, I want you to become a kingdom of priests to the world, and I want you to be a holy nation. Then we get to the New Testament, and we have 12 disciples now, and God's doing a new thing in the New Covenant, and he says to the church, he calls to the church, I want you to what? I want you to be a royal priesthood and a holy people. Nothing at all has changed in God's intention for us and look for us. So here's the look of Christians. Here's what we're supposed to look like. The church is called to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Pretty obvious. God's special possession declaring his praises. Now, ancient Israel struggled with this call. They didn't like it. They wanted to be like the kingdoms around themselves. At one point, they said to God, we want an earthly king. We want to be just like the nations around us. We want a king who will provide for us and protect for us. And what they were doing was they were putting misplaced hope into a human resource rather than placing their hope in God alone. And God gave their wish to them, but it cost them dearly. If you read about the kings in the Old Testament, you'll see that there were very few that were really good. And at best, I would say kings were mostly a distraction. At worst, they were downright destructive. And that's what happens when you begin to put your hope into something other than God. That's a lesson we're supposed to learn because the calling is the same. So when you and I desire to be like the world and to do the things of the world, when we begin to reject the calling of God on our lives now to be a royal priesthood and a holy people, when we begin to reject that, we're going to suffer the same kind of consequences that Israel suffered, a loss of identity and a distancing from God and a misunderstanding of the purpose of life. So here's the big question we're going to look at in this message. Why don't Christians look different? Why don't Christians look different from everybody else? Do the words priesthood, do the words holy and declaring his praises, does that describe the church? Do you think that's what people think of when they think of the church? Does the world see us as those who are far from God see us as radically radically committed people Do they see us as Jesus image bearers? The simple answer why so many Christians don't look any different from the world is that they're not. Like ancient Israel, such ones have succumbed to the temptation, to the tension of wanting to be like the world. And they've achieved that. And they don't look anything different from the world. And so there's confusion. Why would I want to be a Christian? You're no different than us. I, I, I tell you what, um, we face the same tensions as Israel. And, and when it comes to looking different from the world, we face the same obstacles as, as they did. And, and so we have to watch out that we are not succumbing to being so worldly oriented and looking so much like the world that we're no earthly good to anybody, amen? So, here's what I thought when I did this message. You can go down this path really easily and say, oh, you know, the world has all, or excuse me, the church has all these issues, the church at large I'm talking about, okay, has all these issues, blah, 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 and you know, we could sit there and point fingers and all that, what good would that really do us? It do us absolutely no good. And so what I want to do is spend a few moments with you talking about how to become God's distinct people, how to truly become a royal priesthood, what it means to be 
a holy nation of believers that God desires. And I think that can be our look. What do you think? Amen? So I'm going to prompt you again, because you guys need prompting. I'm going to say, I can think that can be our look. Then you're going to say, amen. Here we go. I think that can be our look. Amen. Amen. It can be our look. Thank you. That was energetic. I like it. And I think this is extraordinarily timely as far as the message goes, because look at the times we find ourselves in. Look what's going on around us. We need God's people to rise up and become that holy people they're supposed to become. We need God's people to rise up and become a, 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 a royal priesthood, so to speak, shepherd our world, so to speak, because we got COVID-19 going on like crazy right now. It's still going on. Just this last week, uh, in the Norby family, we were talking about several of our kids getting it. We know Nate has it for sure. He got tested and he's positive. Uh, Peter called the other day. Sounds like he has it. Abby called the other day. She's up in Minot. She's in the hospital there. Sounds like she has it. It's just kind of going everywhere, isn't it? It's just kind of going crazy on us. And, and we need to be people that are holy and, and are, are taking this priesthood of God seriously in these kind of times because our world's lost. They need some shepherding. Besides that, we got all kinds of political unrest. We got all kinds of economic unrest. We got all, all kinds of, um, you know, dislocation kind of thing. Dis, well, I said, that sounds like I dislocated my shoulder. But location issue. People are being moved around that don't want to be moved around because they lose jobs. They have to go to a new location. So I should have said relocation issues going on, not dislocation. If you have a dislocation issue, it's for you too. Have you ever noticed how much in the Bible it talks about us being a holy people? It's all over in the Bible. And we, we just had to step into this identity that God has for us. We're forgiven. Our sins are gone, are gone, are gone as far as east from the west. We're to be the sanctified, set-apart group of people following hard after Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be holy, uh, have this distinctness to us, this peculiarity to us. And, and, and so rather than zoom in on all the deficiencies of the church at large, we're going to look at some keys and some insights for becoming this kind of people. So let me give you the point, and then we're going to talk about it. The key for the right look is transformation for us. We just, we just got to embrace this word and the, what it means. We have to be a transformed people. See, following Jesus is about moving from darkness uh, into light, so to speak, from not understanding uh, to understanding. And it's about this wonderful movement from the control of sin and the control of ourselves and selfish desires, the chasing after worldly endeavors that, that pass away that are so temporary, the hoping in wrong sources for happiness. It's about moving from those kinds of sources in our life, those kinds of influences. Think about how easily we do this. I mean, how many people hoping political solutions to mankind's problems. We just went through another election season. It's, it's, it's a difficult to watch. There's no civility here. There's no two talking. It's just craziness, by and large, when you hear it. We, we, we so easily put our hope in that. But we don't serve this world. We serve a kingdom not of this world. And then, you know, I see so many people think, if I just have a good job and I just have economic, you know, independence, I'll be happy. No, you'll be, in, you know, you'll be independently unhappy. Because money never brings the happiness of the soul. And then some think, if I just get married and I find that right person, I'll be happy. Eh, probably not. That's all I'm going to say. 
I mean, it's a good thing to be married. I'm not saying that, but that's not going to make you happy. And I love you, Vicki. Maybe she's watching online. Anyway, I mean, it's a good thing to be married. You know, the Bible says it's a good thing when a man finds a wife. But, I mean, you know, come on. That won't make you happy if you're honest. So, um, well, okay. I'm going to, I'm just digging myself farther in the hole. Forget it. I'm just done. All right. We think if I have the right career, uh, I'll be, you know, I'll be set for life and all that kind of stuff. But we're to move from this kind of clouded, dark understanding of life. We're to move from that arena that wants to control and dictate us. And we're to move into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ where everything is new and changed. All your priorities change. All your understanding of life changes. That's this wonderful transformation that's supposed to take place. You're supposed to move from this clouded, dark understanding of life to this illuminated, light-filled understanding of life. You got it? This is paramount. This is critical to becoming the royal priesthood and holy inhabitation that God intends us to actually experience. Listen to Romans 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if we're going to be people that have the look that God desires, that being of a royal priesthood and a holy nation, then we have to become ones who are truly and earnestly transformed. Amen? And I want to talk to you for a few moments on some insights of transformation. What does that really imply? How does that really take place? First of all, you must change from the inside out. This is so important. You must change from the inside out. Listen to this warning that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to read verses 23 through 28 eventually here. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. Jesus is saying you ought to tithe. It's good for you to tithe because it acknowledges ownership of God without neglecting the others. And he's saying the other things, the weightier matters of your heart of your inside person being changed. You blind guides, he says, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. (laughs) It's quite a picture, isn't it? So about two weeks ago, remember when it's nice out? I was sitting on our deck. It was like 70 degrees. So I thought, I'm going to go outside and read out in the deck. Oh, my goodness, there's these gnats out there. They were just nasty. So I'm straining on gnats. I'm killing them pretty soon. I'm making a game out of killing the gnats. You ever done that? You die, you die, you die. And I'm straining out all the gnats because they're just starting to really bug me. And I do talk like that that to myself. So if you hear me saying, die gnat, die gnat, you know that's not too far out of the realm of possibility. But now imagine this picture. I'm killing all these little gnats and a dog's chewing on my knee. And I'm thinking, oh, no, go ahead and chew on my knee. The gnats, you're really bugging me. Jesus was saying that's the picture of the Pharisees. They're creating all these minutia laws, all these 
things that you're supposed to watch out for. And on the inside, they're dead, they're rotten, they're sinful to the core. Jesus says, basically, you've got a dog chewing on your knee and you're getting rid of your gnats on your arm. Let's go on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be, uh, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, uh, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Whenever you hear Jesus say, whoa, what does that mean? Whoa. Stop and listen. Uh, We own horses for a long time in our family, and one of the first commands I ever learned was what? Whoa, stop, baby. And then turn their head real sharp so they can't, they, they want to stop. But whoa. And every time I read this scripture and I hear the word whoa, guess what I think? Whoa. Slow down and hear what God is saying. And the Lord Jesus is saying genuine faith is an inside endeavor. Real change starts on the inside. And then it should, if it's real change, impact your whole life, including your outward person. You change from the inside out. Amen? Okay, I'm going to say that again. You change from the inside out, and you're all going to say amen. In fact, if you're at home online, you say amen too. Here we go. You change from the inside out. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I want Grace Point people, I want everybody listening online to understand God wants us to change from the inside out um, so it becomes just who we are, and then we begin to live a life reflective of that. And that impacts our world in a genuine way. Second, second aspect of transformation, you must be all in on this thing. It can't be a half-hearted endeavor. I want to share a story from Kevin Myers, author of Grown Up Faith. We've used some of his material in this series. He's the pastor of 12 Stone Church in Atlanta, a big Western church there. He says this, I was 12 years old and my church was having a revival meeting. And they were renting a middle school gym to do this revival meeting. And, and people were supposed to invite someone to the meeting, which Kevin said I didn't do because I was only halfway in on this thing. And he said, instead, what I wanted to do was ha- use that as an opportunity to connect with a 12-year-old girl that I had a crush on at the time. So they get to this revival meeting, and his parents say to Kevin, um, you go ahead and sit anywhere. So you know what he did, right? He found Julie, his 12-year-old crush, and he sat next to her. And they proceeded to talk throughout the whole message. And he says, I remember the, they were, you know, the evangelist, you know, droning on and on and on and on and on. Some of you might be thinking I'm doing that right now, droning on and on and on. Pretty soon it's like, bop, 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 like Charlie Brown, right? You're not hearing a word. So they're having this full conversation going on. And finally the evangelist can't take it anymore. And he stops the whole meeting and he looks at them and he says, I will wait until you're done to continue. And he's looking at them. And, he, and, and Meyer said, after uh, 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 a few seconds of uncomfortable quiet, I said, you can go ahead now. And so the evangelist continued on. Well, now Meyer's just thinking, I'm dead. I might not see 13. I can't go home. What am I going to do here? Well, so at the end of this, this meeting, like they usually do, these revival evangelistic kind of meetings, they had an altar call with some music playing and all that kind of stuff. And so Kevin Myers came up with this brilliant idea. He says to Julie, we got to get, you know, we got to go to the altar. If we go to the altar, that'll, that'll kind of, you know, it'll, it'll 
soothe over this evangelist. He'll think, I helped some wayward teenagers. It'll make it easier when we go home. And he says, so I'm going to go to the altar first. I'm going to get saved again. <laughs> you seeing the irony of this? And then you, Julie, you come up afterwards. You get saved again. And then everybody's going to be happy. So Myers goes up, does that very thing. And he said it worked. The congregation said, oh, man, that was good to see what happened to you today. The evangelist was happy because he helped some wayward teenager. He went home and they said to the son, that was good. That was good. Now, he said, Julie never did go up. He didn't know what happened to her. She should have taken my advice, he said. But he said this. Now, this is the point to the story. Sometimes we just play games with God. We're halfway in. We're not really participating. We're just kind of working the angles. Listen, if you want to really experience the transformation that Jesus intends, you just got to be all in. There just can't be any game playing. It's got to be genuine, it's got to be real, and you've got to desire it, you've got to be honest, you've got to be transparent, but we can't play games. Jesus said this about the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I want to ask you a question. How many here struggle with being half in or half out when it comes to certain areas of your life? Come on, I'm not talking spirituality. You can throw your hand up there. All right? How many of you, if you're at home watching online, do you struggle with half in and half out on certain things? I see lots of times people are going to go on a diet. You ever, you know, we're getting to Christmas. This will happen in January. It's inevitable. But I know this. They're only halfway in this thing. Because they think I can go on a diet for a couple months and then everything will be perfect and go back the way it was. You know what that's called? Failure. <laughs> because you don't need to change a diet. If you really want to get healthier, you need to change a lifestyle. It needs to be permanently changed. I, I've had a couple um, cardiovascular surgeries. Some of you know that. Some stents and I had some uh, stuff done to my carotid artery. And before I even had my stents, which is the first thing, I knew... I needed to do some drastic lifestyle change stuff. And I had already started doing that when this other stuff began to happen. But I want to tell you, I got well into this. It was about a year before I had this uh, carotid artery surgery. I remember coming out of that surgery with this big, long, five-inch incision thing from, you know, back of my ear basically down to my, you know, all side of my neck. I I was sore. And then there's this thing. They don't tell you all the details, and I'm not very good at asking them. But there's this tube shoved up in there catching the blood going into this little suction thing. I'm going, what? You know, I'm looking at all this stuff, and of course, tubes hanging out my body all over the place. And I remember saying there, I'm committed, Jesus, I'm committed. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And now since that time, I've had well-intentioned Midwesterners, which you all are, say to me, aren't you getting a little bit overboard on this? You know, just eat a few cookies. It won't hurt you. That's not helpful. Because I'm really committed to this diet I'm on. It's not something I'm doing for a month or two. It's a lifestyle I've now embraced. Okay? And, and, and so, if we want to have real transformation, we have to have that kind of radical mindset. And guess what? God provides trials for you and I so that we can make a decision to be all in. So we get the COVID-19 thing going on. It is a 
opportunity. It is a catalytic event, uh, event where God is saying, will you trust in me and me alone? We have these economic woes that we're going through. We have this political unrest we're going through. We have all this racial unrest we're going through. These are all opportunities. They're all catalytic events for us to become all-in people for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Here's my concern. My concern is this. Uh, we're not learning these lessons. We're holding on. We're trying to get through this and get back to, quote, life as normal. We want a vaccination so we can just go back to life as normal. But God doesn't want our life to ever be normal. He wants it to be wholly his. He wants us to be a royal priesthood. He wants us to be a holy people. And frequently, he allows these things in our life till we experience those kinds of things. And if we blow right through this moment and say, oh, please just save me with the magic pill, then we're missing the point of the experience. Church, I'm really concerned. God is calling you and I to rend our hearts to become intercessory kind of person for the glory of Jesus Christ. He's calling us to be priests, to shepherd our world. He's calling us to care about others and to care about their spiritual well-being and their eternal destiny. And these things become catalytic moments for us. Don't blow through it. I've been saying this for months. Don't blow through this. Let it change you and your perspective, then we're going to look like him. And we're not going to look like the world, are we? One last transformation kind of thought. You must not settle in sin, but rather battle sin. I love the prayer Jesus offers in John chapter 17. Um, It's a wonderful prayer. Pastor Aaron preached on it in our John series. If you didn't hear that, go back, listen to that message. It's a wonderful prayer. I want to quote part of that prayer for you today. Uh, It speaks clearly to this point that we're not to settle in sin, but rather battle sin. Listen to what Jesus says as he prays for all believers in John chapter 17, verses 15 through 19. Uh, He said this, I do not ask that you, God, take them, believers, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, he's saying, set them apart in the truth. By the way, your word is the truth, Jesus says. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This scripture is where we get the saying that we're supposed to be in the world, but what? Not of the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Um, I want to talk to you for a a few moments on a a, a relational grid that I use in my mind that may be helpful for you. Imagine, do you ever play Foursquare as a kid? Anybody know what the game of Foursquare even is anymore? You know, you have a a, a square divided into four equal squares, right? It's like a grid of four squares. Well, when that looks... When I look at a relationship that people tend to have with the world, Christians in particular, I think you can divide it into four squares in this kind of grid of relationship, okay? So are you imagining this with me right now? So I want to talk to you about where I think people land uh, frequently in the relationship with the world. When I use the word world, I'm meaning those who don't know God and culture that's far from God. So when I use that term world, I mean how do we relate to the world, those far from God, don't know God. How does this relation work and what does it look like? Let's talk about square one. Um, in this square one, you have those who are relationally engaged with the world as it is. They're buying into its philosophies. Uh, they would answer our 10 big questions we're looking at in this series. 
with a secular answer. Uh, they don't have a godly perspective. That's most of the world. Amen? Would you agree with me on that? That's most of the world. They relate to the world as it is. They're part of it. Now, some Christians, well intentioned as they may be, would say that to be relevant and to be impactful, you have to relate to culture by looking like culture. And so they jump in and they look a lot like the culture around them, saying, well, this is how I want to relate to culture. The trouble is, they are part of that group then that people would say, you look no different than us. Why should I listen to you? Right? This is most of the world. Let's go to square number two. Um, this is the, the, the group of people that have decided that the world is full of sin. It's a bad place. And we want to separate from it. That's what the Pharisees did in the days of Jesus Christ. They said, we're going to separate from the world. We're going to become our own little subculture here. And I read about their results to you earlier today, what Jesus said to them, all those woes, right? Because their inside wasn't changed. So they were judging the world and saying, bad place. We're going to go over here. We're going to separate. And the people that looked at them then looked at this group of people who thought they were holier than thou and came up with this minutia of law, straining out gnats, you know, while swallowing a camel and all that kind of stuff. And, and the saying is true that I like to say to people uh, when they're facing problems and they think escapism will work, where you go, there you are. <laughs> and if you're the problem, the problem's still there with you. And um, being not of this world, that language means we're not of this world. Sin isn't dominating our lives. And so this group that was pharisaical rightly had this judgment rendered at them as you look no different than the rest of the world. You're just doing it as a holy club. Third square, let's look at that. This is a group who's separated from the world and they're not of the world, but they're separated from the world. We sometimes call them monks or the monastic movement. And they pulled away from the world because it's evil and it's full of corruption, and they sequestered over here in their own little huddle, their holy huddle, and I think godly things were going on, but were they doing any priestly duties to the world? None at all. They said, we're just going to leave you guys, basically saying, we're going to go over here and we're going to have experiences with God. You're on your own world. And so, if anything, the world would just look at such ones and say, who are they? We don't even know who they are. They're just, they're out of the picture. They're irrelevant to us. Then the fourth square is this. The fourth square is this. This is where we're supposed to land. Um, uh, Jesus prayed, don't take them out of the world, Father. So the fourth square knows we've got to interact with the world. We're in the world, and we're interacting with the world. We have a relationship with people who don't know Jesus and who do know Jesus. Um, but we're not succumbing to evil philosophies and sinful ways that are contrary to the ways of the Lord God. We're living as light in a dark place. And Jesus knew such ones would not battle flesh and blood. He said the battle that they face, Father, is with the devil. They're going to they're battle against principalities and every high thing that exalts itself against God. And so Jesus said, keep them, protect them from the evil one as they live in the world. Don't let them succumb to this philosophies. Don't let them succumb to the spiritual battle that they're going to be in. And, and we're, so we're, we're supposed to be in this world, but we're supposed to be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and set apart to his ways, sanctified by his truth, bringing grace to those who don't know Jesus Christ, bringing the truth of God into a world that doesn't know truth, who are far from God. We don't settle for sin. We battle sin, but we know that we're not going to escape it by just running away from it. We're going to be there and planted in where God has planted us, and we're going to be light and darkness. We're going to be light where there's death, and we're going to be image bearers of Jesus where there's no image bearers of Jesus, because that's what we're supposed to do. 
That's what the look is supposed to be like. When we have that look, you know what? We won't be accused of looking just like the world. Amen? So let's do a grown-up faith application now. I'm going to do a grown-up faith application. We're going to get to a couple points here I want you to take away. I think God frequently transforms us from a besetting sin to a contrary experience in the realm of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. And that's going to be manifested as I talk here, once again, with mind, heart, and will, how we're supposed to uh, apply what I just shared with you today in those three areas of our life. Let's begin with a mind change. Um, I think God has a call on every one of us to address damaging thoughts. We just have to address damaging thoughts. Kevin Myers admitted that he had a problem with rage when he was younger. He called himself a rageaholic. And one of the key scriptures that he used in his book as he talked about this was James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. A lot of you are going to know the scripture. Listen to this. It says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So transformation that we're looking at today practically starts when you say, I know I have these damaging thoughts that are contrary to the biblical way of thinking. And I'm going to begin to put into my mind the scripture that counteracts it. Amen? And so if you have a problem with anger, you should be memorizing the scripture I just read to you. And you can do that with any kind of besetting sin. You can find the contrary thinking and you begin to embrace it. Let's go on to a heart change. This is a call to seek and embrace the fruit of the Spirit. I love Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Listen to what the fruit of the Spirit are. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Listen, this is how God works. Frequently in our lives, the very thing that was our besetting sin, we get to experience the total opposite in a redemptive manner by the person of the Holy Spirit bringing a fruit that's just opposite of that to bear in our lives. So, if you're an anxiety-ridden person and you give your life over to Jesus Christ and you're praying to be filled with the person of the Holy Spirit, frequently what the Holy Spirit will do is begin to address what in your life? Anxiety. And what will he give you? Peace in place of that anxiety. So if I've gone through some of these times I've gone through myself personally, and you know what I pray for? Jesus, you said, my peace I give you, not as I will give it to you, my peace I leave with you. I'm in the middle of some anxiety, and guess what I do? I turn my heart to God, I turn my heart to Jesus and say, that thing that's trying to master me, that anxiety, do the contrary work in my life, Holy Spirit, and grace me with your peace. If you have an anger problem, and you give your life to Jesus Christ, frequently the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you know what he'll do? He will bring to you what? Self-control. And people who maybe knew you formerly say, wow, have you changed? Ever had that happen? When I was a young person, I would call myself a raging competitor. If I didn't win, if we lost, I was mad. Anybody there with me? I mean mad. Did embarrassing things. Mad kind of things. And the older I've gotten and the more Christ has got a hold of my heart and more the Holy Spirit has filled me, the less that that happens to me. And people say, well, you're mellowing with age. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. That's a myth. You don't mellow with age. 
If Jesus Christ is not controlling you and the Holy Spirit's not filling you, you usually get more cranky with age. Your bad habits become bad or worse. And people will say, well, that's the way they've always been. And the last thing I want anyone ever to say about me is this, that's the way he's always been. No way do I want my sin nature to dominate me and that's the way I've always been. No way, amen? amen. Thank you, Ron. So, at any rate, if you have a problem with joylessness, oftentimes you come to Christ, the joy of the Spirit becomes something that you just really experience. And it will change. Let's get to this last one. We have a call to take the right action as followers of Jesus. Choose to live biblically. I love Proverbs 15.1. I use it all the time when I managed at 3M. It was a verse that I memorized. I was amazed at how well it worked. Let me read the verse to you. It says this, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now that gentle, gentle doesn't mean weak. Gentle is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing weak about the Holy Spirit. It just means you don't think I have to outshout other people. Can you imagine how the debates would change if we had somebody that would do a gentle answer thing every now and then that's well thought out, controlled by the person of the Holy Spirit? I mean, I've never seen so much incivility in my life. It's everywhere. It's all over. You can't even get to anything important because everybody's, all this incivility is going on. The only solution for us Christ followers is that you and I have to be a voice of gentleness into this culture, and it's not weakness. It's gentleness. It's your spirit under the control of the Holy Spirit, and that's a a powerful, effective way. And I found when I was in the middle of conflict at 3M, I would just speak quiet, but it was not weak. And it was amazing how that would go. Just amp that thing down and I would smile. One time someone said, why do you smile? I said, oh, nothing. I just see the ways of God work. The ways of God work. I have an exercise for you this week. We've got to move on. Okay, God has called us all to be priests. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to be like that evangelist. Say amen or I won't go on. Oh, maybe you don't want me to go on. What? Anyway, I better not say that. All right. I got a priestly exercise for us this week, okay? It's from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Read that. Read that multiple times. Read it every day of the week. But then understand this. You are called to be a priest to our culture. You are called to have this look. And when we have this look, I guarantee you, we won't look like the world. But here's, here's a quick summary. Love others. Bear other burdens. Encourage others. Forgive others. Be at peace with others. Accept others. Don't complain about others. Serve others. And then be devoted to one another in love. Starts out with love others, ends with being devoted to one another in love. If we have this kind of look, brothers and sisters, then we're understanding what it means to be a royal priesthood and what it means to look like we're supposed to look and what God intends for us to experience and to be. Let's pray, and I need to turn it back over to Pastor Kyle. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this scripture. Thank you for uh, this thought, uh, um, Lord, that uh, you know, is articulated in the Old New Testament that we're to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Grace us to be that kind of people, Lord. Grace us to be that kind of people, I pray. God, I pray that... Uh, You know, we wouldn't settle with sin and make some kind of concession to sin, but that we'd always battle it, Lord. I pray we'd be all in, Lord, and never half-hearted in following after you, Lord God. I just pray that all these things that we talked about today would become realities that we experience, not just something that's talked about, Lord. And may we take serious this whole Philippians 
chapter two scripture because in Philippians two it also says we're, we're, we're or Philippians I should say we're supposed to become like shining stars in our culture Lord and the way we do that is to be holy people and a royal priesthood Lord and then we'll have the look that you intend and we won't be ones accused of looking just like the world so bless this time as we finish today Lord Jesus fill this place with your presence and your power in your name Jesus I pray amen